Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. We're in Matthew tonight, chapter 4. We're going to pick up our study in verse 17 and read through the end of the chapter where we'll pull our uh, thing from tonight. The study is called From Seaside to Summit. And we read in the text, it says that from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent or to turn or change your mind for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it says that Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And straightway, right away, immediately, it says that they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, that's the northern region of the land of Israel, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, that's a neighboring country, and they, that brought, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with divers diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, so those that were physically maimed, and those that also struggled mentally, those that had issues in their soul in the invisible place, those that had issues that could not be put into words, they were brought to Jesus, and none of it was too hard for him. It says that those which were lunatics... And those that had the palsy, and it says that he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee, and from Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, and from Judea, and from beyond Jordan. Would you guys just pray with me as we uh, get ready to talk about this text? Father, we, we again come to you in your word. And Father, we thank you, Lord, that as the rain descends from heaven and the snow... And it waters the earth, that it brings forth bread to the eater and seed to the sower. You said, so shall my word be that comes from my mouth. It will not return to me void, but it will accomplish the thing that I sent it to do, and it will prosper in my purpose. And so, Lord, as you've spoken these things, as you've recorded it in your word, as you've anointed it by your spirit, as you've gathered us as your church, and as your spirit is here to teach, Lord, we ask that you would apply this passage to our lives in a way that matters and that makes an impact on us forever. And so we lift this study time to you, Lord. We pray for your spirit to be here. In Jesus' name, amen. This uh, passage or story or account that happened in the the life and ministry of Jesus is really uh, one of the most well-known, it's very endearing, uh, passage of scripture that, that most people are familiar with. It's very elementary. If you read the Gospels, you come across the story very quickly. I also believe that this is probably one of the most overlooked portions of scripture, just for the, the, the sheer audacity of kind of what takes place in the account. I mean, I, rem- I know it, their heart's in the right place, but sometimes you watch like a Bible movie, right? 
and they're trying to depict the life of Jesus and the various things that happened in, over the course of his ministry. And, and, and oftentimes you'll see this scene and you'll just see like Peter and Andrew and they're there in the boat and they're kind of tired or they're, they're working on their nets or they're casting it. And then you just see Jesus kind of like skipping rocks along the edge of the, you know, the, the seaside going along there and he's wearing his robe and he's like, hey, and they stop and they look up and he says, come, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And they just stick and they look at their, their, each other. They drop everything and they just jump and they go. And, and you kind of watch that and you're like, really? I mean, come on. Like, that, like zombies, like as though Jesus, like with his words was like, come. And there was something magnetic about the way that he said it, you know, like that they're just going to go do it. I almost think if I envision this in real life, because this was real life, that that right there would disqualify them from being candidates to follow Jesus. I mean, how irresponsible really is it? I mean, they're in the middle of a work shift, right? They have responsibilities. They've agreed to give a day's wage for a day's pay. There's, there's something, there's life going on here. And all of a sudden, this hippie comes walking along the shore, and he says, hey, guys, let's go. And they're like, yeah, this, that sounds way better than what we got going right now. Let's do it, you know? I would think that if Jesus was really trying to build a following, he wouldn't want that type of person. Because when's the next most exciting thing going to come along? That's going to draw them away then from him, right? So what was going on here? And really, there's a little bit more to the story than just Jesus coming by. They've never seen him before. He says a word, and they just go. Matthew doesn't tell us the backstory, but if you compare accounts between what Luke says and what John says, there's more to it. Luke tells us that it wasn't Jesus just by himself. It says that there was a multitude of people that were already so interested in hearing his word that Jesus needed to borrow a boat in order to push off from shore to give amplification and space so that the multitude that was gathered could hear him. And it was Peter's boat that Jesus borrowed. Luke tells us that. Matthew leaves it out. And so Jesus borrows Peter's boat. He preaches a message. There's an amazing day of ministry. And when it's over with, Jesus says to Peter and Andrew, he says, hey guys, launch out your nets for a catch. And they argue and say, yeah, no. We've been doing this all night. We're fishers. You're a rabbi. We know the sea. You know the Bible. That's not a good idea. This is not the time for that. And Jesus, all right, you know, do it. And so they do it. They let out one net, and they haul in a catch of fish so great that their net breaks. And, and they fall down. They realize that there's something about them. And it's then that Jesus says to Peter and Andrew, he says, I will make you fishers of men. Come follow me. And so there's a little bit more to the story than just Jesus walking by and saying, now also it helps to know that this is not the first encounter that Jesus has had with Peter and Andrew and James and John. This is probably a couple of weeks, maybe even as much as a couple of months into the public ministry of Jesus. Because we're told back in verse 12 of chapter 4 that all of these things happened after John the Baptist was put in prison. Well, John the Baptist, there was a lot of ministry of Jesus that happened before John was put in prison. So before this, 
There was already the day when Jesus was introduced to Peter and Andrew, and and Jesus said to Peter, down towards Jerusalem, not up in Galilee, that your name is Simon, but it shall be Peter. That happened already before this. What also happened before this time is that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. So Jesus in Galilee was in synagogue with Peter, probably went to his house at some point after that and healed his sick mother. So there was already some rapport. They had already seen that there was something more about Jesus than what they had known just as a hippie walking along the seaside. They heard his word. They saw the fish. Peter's wife was healed. There was somewhat of a rapport. And now at this point, Jesus calls them to become followers of him. Now, why is it, why is it that Matthew leaves all that out? Because you would think that in the mind of a, of a, of a, a reader or someone who's hearing, that you would want to know some of it. Like, why is it that Matthew leaves out? Because I'm thinking, like, who are these guys that they would just leave everything? Now remember, who is Matthew's audience? He's writing primarily to who? The Jews. Very good. He's writing to a Jewish audience. And to a Jewish audience, this would make more sense even if you don't have all of those details. It adds color to know that, but it's not necessary for a Jewish audience. Now, from the very beginning of creation, when God first made the heavens and the earth, God always had people. Even before there were Jews, even before there was a Bible or a Torah or any written word of God, God had people. And the people of God always have valued and understood the power and the potency of the word of God. They've always understood, we have always understood, that it's by the word of God that the heavens were made, that the earth was formed, that all the things that are seen came into existence. God's people have always known that God's word is with power, even before there were Jews to record the written word or a Bible for us to read. Abraham understood the power of God's word. When God was talking to Abraham's son, God says that the reason why I'm blessing you and the reason why I blessed Abraham, he says it's Genesis 26, verse 5. He says, because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. All of those things, different denotations to talk about the word of God. Abraham knew the power of my word. And God's people have always known the power of God's word. Now, until Moses, which he came later on in the story, until Moses, there was no Bible. There was no Torah. There was nothing written. There were fragmented records. There were oral traditions. But it was Moses who compiled, edited, and completed what would become the first written record, which would be called the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And that became the prized possession, not only of the Jews, but of all the people of God, wherever they were. They loved the word because they knew the power of the word. Now, when Moses recorded the first thing, the Torah, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses wisely included two things right towards the end of the Torah. He talked about the value of God's word, 
and also the responsibility that the word carried with it. Now, I'm not going to read you the passage because of time, but I'm going to tell you where it is, and I'm going to tell you what it says. It's Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 33 through 40. And if you go through that segment of scripture, Moses is going to tell you what the value of God's word is. And here's what he's going to say in that passage. He's going to say that through the word of God, you're going to learn how to hear his voice. Not just through what's spoken that's read, but because you're going to have a cultivated understanding of who he is, and you're going to learn how to hear the still small voice that can't be heard with human ears. You're going to learn that. He says also you're going to know through the word, you're going to come to the place where you know that you belong to him, that you're his prized possession. You're also going to see God and know him personally. You're going to be able to see the invisible God and the word of God is going to be the agent that's going to enable you and teach you how to do that. Also, you're going to learn life. You're going to learn why life. You're going to learn where life came from. You're going to learn how to do life. God's going to include that. He puts it in his word. Through the word, God is going to bring you in Moses says, to the purpose and plan that God has had for you from the beginning of time. That the word of God is going to be what brings you to the place where you know God's will for you. And then finally, he says that through the word of God and you're walking in it, living in it, things are going to go well for you and for your kids. Now, if you take all of that, that really covers everything. You're never going to come into a situation or a season or a time in your life where having those six things that Moses says there are not going to get you through or help you through. And so that's the value of the word. So there's value, but then there's also responsibility. Now, I am going to read these verses. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. And this is what Moses says. Because God has given you his word, and because you know the value of the word... He says that these words which I command you this day shall be in your heart. That means they got to go beyond the mind and beyond the book and beyond the pews. They got to get inside. They'll be in your heart and you shall teach them diligently unto your children. And you'll talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them upon the posts of your house and upon your gates. In other words, it is so valuable what God has given to you in his word. And it is so powerful and so helpful that it is your responsibility to expose yourselves and your offspring to it as much as you can, as often as you can, in the fullest way that you can. Because it's going to be life to them. That is your responsibility. Now, thankfully, Moses' instruction took. The people of God knew the power of God's word. And so they made it the priority in raising their kids. That is the Jewish people, God's chosen people. Those whom he worked with in Old Testament times. They made it their culture They made it their way to raise up their kids in the things of God. And so from the time that a child was even in the womb, mothers, dads would whisper passages of scripture to the baby, believing that they could hear it and that the seed could be sown even in vitro. From the time that they were zero to four, the time that they were weaned, parents would whisper, would speak to them, talk to them scriptures all the time, whispering the truths. 
Then at age four, which is pretty young, I mean, you're just coming to at that age, between ages four and ten, they would begin their time in what they called Bet Sefer, which was kind of how we would, uh, you know, do elementary school. And Bet Sefer was really at the local synagogue. And much of their education was right out of Torah, right out of the Word. They would learn the Word. They would learn to read in the Word. The Word was the main emphasis of the education. And so that by the time they were at the age of 10, they would be in a place where they would have memorized large portions of Scripture, the foundation of an early age. At age 10, they would then move on to the next level of education. They would go to Bet Midrash, or the House of Interpretation where they would begin to learn some of the greater things, some of the oral traditions, some of the prophetic writings. And they would continue advancing forward their knowledge of God's word. Many would also at this time begin to apply themselves to the family trade. So be it that they were fishermen or, you know, uh, workmen in some way or whatever. Whatever the family trade was, they would begin to learn that as well. And, and then, and then uh, did I, no, I didn't miss one. The House of Interpretation. And then at that point, by the time they got to the age of 13, those that were really the best of the best, those that showed that they had the aptitude, they had the spiritual depth, they had maybe some leadership qualities and abilities, those people would go on in their education and they would become what were called Talmudim. And that was literally what we would refer to as disciples. They would be called to follow a rabbi or to become tutelage of a rabbi where they would then learn at an even deeper level. They would listen, they would learn, they would travel with the rabbi, they would imitate, they would absorb, they would assimilate all of the life practices and doctrines of the rabbi with the intent that they would then replicate him. So it was the highest honor for a Jewish person in all ages, from the time that the word was laid down all the way up until the time of Jesus, the highest honor that you could have was to be called to follow a rabbi. It would be, in our society, like being called up to the major leagues. You know, if you were a ball player or if you played sports and you made it through and you get called up, you go to the pro level. And the way that we look at someone like that and say, now that is talent, that's elitism, in their society, to be called by a rabbi, that was the highest honor. The rabbis in ancient Israel, they were the influencers. They were the sages, the counselors, the commentators. They were the ones that people wanted to hear what they had to say. They had the most followers on their blog posts and their Instagram pages, the most likes. They had the most followers. People loved the rabbis. They were the culture of ancient Israel. The tradition of following rabbis was something that was historical. We read about Elijah, the prophet. And when he passed by, he threw his mantle on Elisha, the young man. And basically, that was, that was known. Elisha knew what was happening right there. He says, let me go tell my parents. And Elijah goes, you do what you want. I'm going this way. And, and, and Elisha was so honored by the fact that this happened that he took the oxen that he was plowing with and he killed them right there. He's like, I, I'm so sure I'm not coming back to this life after this. I'm not going to mess this up. I'm not even going to leave the door open for me to come back to this. He just kills him right there. 
Just, just that one thing throws the mantle on him, and he goes and follows him. It was an amazing opportunity. It was a high honor, high calling. And that's the way that rabbis were trained. You recall that the apostle Paul, when he was giving his credentials, his resume to those that were persecuting him, he said, I was a Pharisee from the sect of the Pharisees, and I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a highly respected rabbi in that early first century. And Paul was his disciple prior to coming to Christ. That's the way that it was done. That's how rabbis were trained. Now, if you were called to follow a rabbi, and you were a Talmudim, you were a disciple, then from that age of 13 all the way up through age 20, you would be considered an apprentice. And then between age 20 and age 30, or around there around, that would be a segment of time where it would be called experience, where you would be kind of, you would be beginning to go out on your own, but not really. There would be a little leash let out, but not really. You know, there was experience for those 10 years. And then around the age of 30, at that point, you would go through a ceremony where you would be given what they called smika. Now that you don't have to memorize that, there's not going to be a test. But what it literally means is authority. You would be given spiritual authority at that point. It's kind of like the equivalent of ordination, as we would say it today, that someone is ordained or accredited or certified uh, to minister. But in their context, it was an authority where they now had the uh, permission to interpret scripture and they were respected by their audiences as being authoritative. So when they would read and then interpret and teach people would take seriously what they said because they had smika they were given authority they were respected now that's why jesus as you read through was constantly being asked by the religious establishment where did you get your authority where did you get your smika who is it that appointed you and and jesus would constantly say look my authority comes from a little bit higher than where your guys' authority came from, (laughs) you know? But they wanted to know that because it was important. Now, another thing that's interesting is that in those days, a rabbi, his particular bent on scripture, his interpretation, his style, his, I guess, mantle that he would have to pass on to his disciples, his Talmudim, it was referred to as his yoke. And so you would take the yoke of your particular rabbi. And the yoke represented four things. If you would take the yoke of a rabbi, you would memorize his words, you would adopt his interpretation of scripture, you would imitate his ministry model, and ultimately you would multiply his teaching in having disciples of your own as your maturity progressed and as it happened. So when a rabbi called you all throughout the time of God's history, that rabbi saw in you the ability to be a replica of himself. He saw something, some level of potential, where he was saying that you can be just like me. Now, when you understand this, it makes a little bit more sense why Peter and Andrew, established in their career and in their trade and in their business would immediately forsake all to follow Jesus, whom they've already seen that he has smika because he's healing people and multiplying, you know, catches of fish. There's something about what he does 
and what he says that's supernatural. And if that rabbi is calling me to follow him, I'm in. I'm in. Tear up the nets, slay the oxen, throw the poles overboard. Sorry, dad. (laughs) You know, but we're going because we've been called by a rabbi. Why did Matthew, the tax collector, who was even an outcast of Rome, wealthy by his own trade, why when Jesus would walk by and say, follow me, would Matthew just drop his pen, close his book, say, sorry, everybody in line, pull down the shade. We're closed. We're done. And he gets up and he follows Jesus. Because there was no greater honor than to follow a rabbi. It was a high calling. Now, here's the thing that is remarkable, and here's why it matters. This is why it's so cool. Because who did Jesus call to become followers of him, Talmudim, disciples, those that could become just like him? Do you know who he called? He called people that were already working in their trade. He called people that had already been passed over as not being competent, deep enough, smart enough, talented enough to be followers of a rabbi. Now you say, well, how do we know that they wanted to be followers of a rabbi? We actually do know that they wanted to. You know how we know? Because all of these men were down in the Jordan region where John the Baptist was baptizing, which was 70 miles north of Galilee during the time of the ministry of John. When Jesus was baptized, they were there, which means that they had a slant towards spiritual things. It isn't that they were just workmen that said, oh, we go to synagogue on Sunday, Jerusalem is Jerusalem, Galilee is Galilee, they do their thing, we do our thing. No, these were men that wanted the things of God. They were interested. When they heard that there was a prophet, John the Baptist, they went down and listened to what he said. They were baptized by him. They were close to him. They had a desire for the things of him. We see of Peter that he was in the synagogue with Jesus. He had Jesus over to his house. Peter was desiring the things of God. And yet these men who desired the things of God were deemed by the establishment to not be good enough. You're not sharp enough. You're not good enough. Go keep your trade, support the synagogue, keep doing your thing, but not for you. But not with Jesus. Jesus chose these men that had been overlooked, deemed unqualified and incompetent. And we know that even later on, because it's Acts chapter 4, verse 13. This is after Jesus is gone, and now they have some shmika. They got some authority of their own. They stood before the religious rulers, and it says that the religious rulers' response to them, it says that now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, it says they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Meaning that there was nothing in them that was professionally qualified according to the standards of the day for them to be chosen followers of a rabbi. But that didn't deter Jesus. He called them nevertheless. If Jesus calls you to follow him, if Jesus says, follow me, then what that means is that Jesus believes that you can be just like him. Matthew chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus says, It is enough that a disciple, a Talmudim, be as his Lord. Lowercase l, that would be the rabbi, the teacher that he is following. 
That is what Jesus sees when he calls someone to follow him. He sees that you can be like him. If Jesus calls you to follow him, it also means that he wants you to be with him. Because that's when you would follow a rabbi, you would be with the rabbi. You would shadow the rabbi. And that means that if Jesus calls you to follow him, he wants you with him. John chapter 15, verse 5 Jesus says this. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. You guys, some of you know this passage of scripture. He says, he that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done to you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. And then, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue in my love. Jesus wants his followers with him. He says, abide in me, abide with me. Jesus wants his people near him. If Jesus calls you to follow him, It also means that he can empower you to do what he does. If you're going to be like him, then you can do what he does. John chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believes on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Meaning that you are not restricted in your humanness from doing what Jesus did. And then finally, if Jesus calls you to follow him, it's because he knows that he can give you smika. He can give you authority. John chapter 20, verse 21 and 22, the day came. After they apprenticed, after they grew up, walked with Jesus, it says that Jesus said to them again, Peace be unto me, as my Father sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. He gave to them authority by the person, presence, and power of the Holy Spirit for them to go in the same authority that he himself went with. And it wasn't just for them. Because Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, the Great Commission, Jesus says this, not just to them, but to all of his followers. He says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. He actually begins that little segment right there by saying, it's in verse 18, he says that all authority, all smika in heaven and earth is given to me. And he says, now I send you. He imparts the authority to those whom he calls. That's an amazing and remarkable thing to realize that if Jesus calls a person to follow him, to become a disciple of his, that's what he has in mind. He's not trying to build a big crowd of people or an army of people that he can just say are his own. He calls disciples. He says, teach all nations. That means to make disciples, make followers of all nations, followers of him. And this is what Jesus has in mind for everyone that he calls. To follow Jesus begins with his call upon our lives. He calls us in much the same way that he did with Peter and Andrew, James, and John. There was a little bit of a rapport 
there was a little bit of exposure. They saw a little bit of him in Jerusalem. They saw a little bit of him in the synagogue of Galilee. Then they saw a little bit of him on the seaside when the multitude of people were there. And they were drawn to him in their curiosity. And as they, their hearts were softened and they began to open themselves to examine who Jesus was, there was something that was happening. There was a connection that was being made between him and them, between heaven and earth. And then the moment came as they opened themselves up to see who he was, to take an honest look and to examine who is this prophet, who is this rabbi, who is this man, that as they began to open their hearts, the word eventually came that they were to follow him. And the same thing happens in the life of you and I today, though he is not physically present on the earth. We're exposed to him in some manner. We maybe come into a church and we hear a message like this or we hear something on the radio or we meet someone that seems a little bit different than other people that we've met at other times in our life. Or we we sense something in our spirit. Maybe there's no person or place involved, but there's something in our spirit where we find ourselves drawn for some reason that we can't explain to the things of God. Or there's a conviction that comes where we realize that we're guilty before him. Or there's an emptiness that we become aware of because we know we've been made for something, but we can't figure out exactly what it is. And as that begins to happen, there's an opening and we begin to examine, even if it's in secret and in silence. And we begin to wonder about the things of God. And he begins to knock. And eventually the moment comes where we hear him say, whether through the words of a preacher or whether it's through something that we read on our own or even something that God might do, where we hear him say, follow me. And at that point we have the choice because the burden of response is on us. He doesn't force us. He won't make us, but he invites us. He paved the way through his cross and he opens the door. And if we'll respond to him, we begin following Jesus. We become Talmudim. In the, in the earliest sense. And from there, we go into kind of that apprenticeship stage, don't we? Where we don't really know what happened. We don't know what we're doing. But things, we know something happened and we begin to learn. And this is the, the stage, really, of following him where he begins now to work in our lives. We've invited him in. We said yes. And, and we're not following a man in a robe on a seashore But we're following a Messiah who says, I can get into your life, not holding your hand, but living in your heart. And as we begin to follow him, he begins to work inside of us. It's interesting to me that Jesus' message, right, when he first began to speak, it was given to us in verse 17. He said, repent. That was his message. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To repent just simply means to change your mind. Your mind has operated in this direction and it's gone this way. Now change it, or at least open it and yield it so that I can do something in your life. Allow me access. Repent. That was the message. Let me in. And then the result of it, as they did it, as they heeded it, as you read in the last part of the passage, the second half of the passage, it says that he healed them. So repentance was followed by restoration. Both things physical, things mental, Things spiritual and things invisible. Lunatics. Any lunatics here tonight? I'm one. (laughs) There's a healing. There's a restoration that begins. As we let Jesus into our lives, he begins to put us back together. He teaches us how to think. He teaches us how to understand that there's other people on the planet and not just ourselves. 
You know, he begins to do things in us and he restores things that maybe never were alive. He teaches us how to love. Well, I didn't even know what love was. He teaches us how to care about someone else. I didn't even know that that was a thing. He teaches us how to receive love from God. Those roots were withered from the time I was born. I didn't even know you could be loved by God. And he begins to heal. He begins to work in the life. And his work of healing is all the way through the whole person. When Jesus gets in, he restores the soul, he restores the mind, he restores the will, he, he restores the affections, he works in the priorities, he changes my character, he works in my relationships and my relatability, he changes and molds and heals my values, my motivation, my drives, everything. He works in the whole life when he gets into it. And that's what happens when we begin to follow Jesus, is he begins to restore, he begins to heal, he begins to make us whole. Now, interestingly, and, and, and myself included, many people want to kind of skip over this stage. You know, we're kind of like want to let this happen in the background, you know, the, the restoration and the healing part of things, you know, I, I want to kind of skip this, but you can't skip this. If, if this part doesn't happen, then you cannot move on to the next part where you begin experience and ultimately authority. Because if Jesus doesn't work in our lives first and transform us a little bit, then we've got nothing to give to anyone that we would want to help. And so the work of him in our lives is absolutely essential. You know, it's interesting that the passage we read tonight starts with the words that from that time. Did you catch that? It says from that time. Now, that time when Jesus started to preach that was already a few weeks or a few months into his ministry. A lot had already happened before Jesus started to preach. Before Jesus started to preach, he had already turned water into wine at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Before Jesus started to preach, he had already had a conversation with a man named Nicodemus, teaching him how to be born again and what it means to know God and to know him personally. Before Jesus began to preach, he had already healed a nobleman or a ruler's son that had been sick. Just a man. We don't even know who he was. Before Jesus began to preach, he had had an encounter with a single Samaritan woman at a well, telling her what was going on in her life, giving her the answer to the thing that she needed deeply in himself, and leading her to a saving knowledge of Jesus himself. Before Jesus ever preached publicly, he went into a village of Samaritans, enemies of the people, and he spent two days with them, just being among them, being one of them. Before Jesus ever preached publicly, he ministered and gave himself privately and to people individually. There was a process there. It didn't happen right away. Before Jesus' power of the Spirit was ever demonstrated on a hillside in front of a multitude, it was demonstrated in homes and with individuals. And it's important to understand that public ministry is always an outgrowth of personal ministry. Before we can be effective with a multitude of people, what's in us has to be real with a few people. And here's what you need to understand, what we need to understand is that if the power that is in you doesn't work at home or in the office or in your sphere of influence, then please don't export it. Rather, figure out what's missing 
get with God and start there. Because he has to work in my life before he can begin to do things outside in my life through other people. So Jesus begins to preach to the multitude because the people needed it. Now from there, you go from Jesus working in your life, from there, now you move to experience where Jesus begins to move through your life. He's working in your life, now he's going to work through your life, and you come to this. Now what did Jesus say to Peter when he called him? He said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I've got something for you to do. Now I love this part because it gives me hope. It tells me that God's plan for my life, his call upon my life, is going to be somewhat in line with the way that I'm naturally inclined. See, a lot of times I fear, feared, you know, you probably fear, that if you really surrender to God and surrender your will to his will, he's going to make you do something that you really hate. Jesus, you're going to make me go stand on a street corner and tell people to repent really loud, aren't you? Jesus, if I give myself to you, you're going to make me go on the mission field and I'm going to have to eat bugs and I, I'm not that kind. I'm a homebody. You know, you're going to make me, no, 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 no. Listen, God didn't make a mistake when he made you in the beginning. Okay, he knit you together in your mother's womb and he gave you certain tendencies, inclinations, desires, and abilities that he then, when he comes into your life, glorifies and partners with you and he uses some element of the way you are to complete his will and to beautify his kingdom. Now, being a teacher or a preacher, for me, is not a spiritual gift. There wasn't a day that God just said, go preach, you know, and all of a sudden it was like, Nick's a preacher. No, no, no. From the time I came out of the womb, okay, I was a deep thinker who would put things together with an ability to say it. I could do that from the time I was four. You know, I would tell someone a story or a movie, and I'd give them the four-hour version of a two-hour plot, you know, because it's just the way that I'm wired. And so when I gave my life to Christ, he came upon what I already was, and he began to use it in a way that would bring him glory, and it brings me pleasure because it's the way that I'm wired. You know, So his place for his people is something that makes sense. And that's a glorious thing to realize that why am I this way? And I give my life to Christ, he begins to use me, and now I understand, Lord, this is why you wired me like this. Because you wanted to use me in this way. And it's a remarkable thing to see how God does that. Now, as you grow, as you change, as you experience, he begins to give authority. Right? Now, at first, he gave them some authority. Right? He said, I'm going to give you guys some power to go cast out some demons, heal some people, preach some messages, do some things. But then you'll come back and you're going to find that that power is somewhat limited right now. And that's what he does in our lives, right? He gives us little things, and we go, and we, and because and, he's teaching us. We're following him. He's discipling us. He's conforming us. He's transforming us. But do you notice what it says in verse 20? In Matthew chapter 4 there, verse 20, it says that when he called them to follow him, it says that straightway, right away, it says that they forsook their nets and they followed him. It tells us in Luke's gospel, parallel passage, same encounter, but Luke adds the word. It says that they left and forsook all and followed him. It says they forsook everything and followed him. I want you to understand this. 
that if Jesus calls you to follow him, there is a cost involved. You can't buy it. It's not something that you purchase, per se, but there absolutely is a cost. We see it here in these men. They could not experience God's will for their life and also at the same time try to continue in the path that they were on. There had to be a shift. There had to be a forsaking of something in order to obtain something else. And here's the fact and the reality, is that if God wants to do something in your life, then he needs space to do it. And sometimes to get space, he's going to ask of you to leave something behind that maybe is important to you, and it'll involve some kind of a cost. Now, I don't know about you, but I have this thing where I'm a little bit stubborn, and I don't like change. And so sometimes he asks something of me, and I can tend to be a little bit resistant. He might put his searchlight on something in my life. Maybe it's not even a sinful something. It's just a something something. And he might say, Nick, there's something I want to do in your life right now, and I want to take you further. I want to take you deeper. I want to give you more of me. But this thing, this thing right here, you see it? I'm like, no, Lord, I don't see what, I don't see. Are you pointing to this? Lord, is that what you're, no, no, that, this thing right here. I'll go, oh, uh, Lord, my, I, Georgia is desperately in need of me to do some dishes right now. But we'll have this conversation tomorrow morning in devotions. And we'll talk about, about it then. I can't hear so, you know, I can be stubborn and I can resist sometimes when he wants to do something in my life that can happen the problem is that when i resist something he's asking me to yield he's not asking me to yield it because he doesn't want me to enjoy something that i enjoy it's because he sees something that he wants to do that's even greater but this something is in the way of him doing it i i saw a documentary it was kind of on purpose but kind of not it was you know how you go on youtube and it recommends things that you might want to watch and so there was this thing about how Freemasons are conspiring to take over the whole world, you know. And I thought, well, that sounds kind of interesting just for entertainment, you know. I don't go too far down those paths. Yeah, I serve a king who says that the nations are a drop in the bucket and that he knows the end from the beginning. So none of that stuff really moves me all that much. But I thought, well, this will be fun while I eat lunch to watch this. So I watched this documentary. And it was talking about how, uh, you know, masonry has had this conspiracy for, you know, hundreds or thousands of years that they're going to take over the world and this whole thing. But in order for you to become a part of that conspiracy, you have to work your way up through the various ranks of their, you know, membership and, and, and whatever. And, and so the documentary, and I don't even know if this is true because this is a documentary on the Internet. You know, but what they said in the documentary is that there's a level that you get to as you move up through as a Mason where there's a ritual and they want you to spit on a cross. So they put you in a thing and you got to spit on a cross. And the whole idea behind the ritual is that they're testing you to see if you'll do it. And the whole idea is, you know, for them is, is, is will you put your membership to the brotherhood above all else, even above religion? And so they'll ask you to spit on a cross. And if you refuse, because you say, I can't do that, I can't spit on a cross, then they will tell you that you made the right decision. But really, you made the wrong decision in terms of, like, you're, you're trying to advance through the levels. Because if you don't spit on the cross, then you remain at that level of masonhood forever. And you just become kind of a soldier in their thing. And it's only those that will do it 
that then can move on and advance up through the ranks. And I thought, you know, that, that's kind of interesting. You know, but there is a parallel in the Christian life. Now, Jesus is not a lodge master, okay? And he's not going to ask us to spit on, on the cross or anything like that. He never would do that. But what I do know is this, is that when Jesus puts his searchlight on something in our life, and he says that there's something that I want to do, and if you're going to follow me, it's going to require you to walk through a door, and you can't carry those things that are in your hand with you through that doorway because they're not going to fit. And you need to forsake those things and trust me that I've got something I'm going to do that's even greater than that. And if we refuse, he doesn't cast us off. He doesn't say, I'm done with you. He doesn't say, you're not saved. I knew you wouldn't make it. But what does happen is that our progress is immediately impeded. And we get stuck in some way in the place that we are because we're unwilling to forsake something. You know what I've learned about Jesus? Is that he is the most amazing interior designer. He's the most amazing space planner ever. Because he sees inside of us. And he knows that there are things in us that if they stay there, they're going to impede. They're, they're taking up too much space. He knows something's got to go to make room for something even more. He's so good, isn't he, the way he challenges us? You know, sometimes the Lord will talk to me and he'll, he'll say, Hey, uh, Nick, you know, you, know you, you, you sing amazing love, but you live Amazon love. And I'll go, Lord, I don't want to talk about this right now. You know, that Prime membership was a good deal. And, <laughs> and I'll say, Nick, you know, sometimes you, you, you sing in church. You sing, it's all about you. But you live, it's all about YouTube. And, 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 and that's space I want to take. That's space that belongs to me. What are you doing? And I'll go, Lord, do we, do we really? I mean, Lord, it's just, it's helping me. It's research. It's for the Bible studies. Nick. You know, you, you say that you want to work out your salvation, fear and trembling. You want to work out your salvation. You want to grow in me. But, but you live that you want to work out your abs and your pecs and your legs. You, you, there's some inconsistencies. See, sometimes they're not necessarily bad things, but sometimes they're just thing things that he's saying, I'm asking you. Now, you guys are judging me really hard right now. I can feel it. <laughs> you got your own stuff, right? Like... You say, I want to seek your face, and he's saying to you, you want to seek your Facebook. You know, you have, we all got our stuff, right? But listen, here's the heart of our, of our master, of our Lord. Is that he says, I want you to follow me. Because I know that what I'm going to do in your life is going to be so perfect for what you were made for. And when you follow me, you are going to come to a place where you're going to know how to hear God's voice. And you're going to know that you belong to him and know your identity in him. And you're going to come to a place where you see God every day and come to a place where you learn what life is all about and your priorities are right. And, and you're going to come to a place where you are brought in to the very thing that you were made for and you don't even realize how you get there. And you're going to come to a place where it's going to go well for you and for your kids and for those that come after. That's what I want to do in your life. And that's why I'm calling you to follow me and nothing nothing will hinder me from doing in your life what only I can do in your life. Not your education level, not your background, not what you're dragging in, not how much you've messed yourself up before you came. Nothing is going to keep me from doing it because when I begin to work in a life, I know how to complete it. There's only one thing that can hinder Jesus from completing his work in a life. 
And that is unbelief. Unbelief in the form of resistance. Where we say, Lord, I don't know. Are you really? Can you really? There's one time where it says that Jesus could not do mighty works. It was in his own hometown. And it says that he could not there do many mighty works because of their unbelief. They were so familiar with Jesus that they could no longer trust in Jesus, believe in Jesus. I believe that there are some people that are here tonight in this room. And you began to walk with God. You heard the voice to follow. You opened your heart to follow. And you walked with him for a while. I don't doubt that you're not still walking with him even right now. But there have been some places and some things along the way where he has asked of you certain some things. And you have said, Lord, I can't hear you so good. Let's talk about this later. And the byproduct of that is not that he's withdrawn from you. It's not that he has cursed you or damned you or you're under discipline. It's none of that. But you know in your heart that you've been walking in circles. Walking in circles. Walking in circles. And your progress is impeded. And what Jesus would ask of you tonight is to trust him. That as you surrender all, forsake all, yield all, that what he is wanting and willing and able to do in your life is exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ask, think, or imagine. And so maybe tonight you're here and you're in that place and you know it and you hear again the gracious God saying, follow me. Follow me. Follow me. I want to ask you to do something just very brave tonight. That if you're in that place where you know that you're clinging to two bags that won't fit through the doorway that's right in front of you, you need to let go. That if you hear his voice and you'll trust him enough to do it, that if you would just, right now where you are, just stand. Just stand in the place that you are. And let me pray for you. And together, we'll go to the throne and we'll say, Jesus, I I want what you've got. I don't want to waste the life that you've given me. I don't want to waste the opportunity. I don't want to waste your call. I don't want to waste time. I don't want to live a life not knowing ever fully what it could have been. So, Father, we come to you tonight, those of us that are standing, and I'm standing. And we're asking you, Lord, that you would have those parts of our heart Maybe those habits, rhythms, those forms and formulas, those things, Lord, that have kept us, that are keeping us. And we're asking tonight, God, that you would have all of us. That you would win us in your persuasion. That we would see your size, your glory, and your goodness. That we'd see the seriousness of the call and esteem the prize, the value of having your authority in us. Having your presence with us of serving your purpose with our lives. We ask that you'd help us, Lord, for we yield all to you. We yield all to you. You can be seated. But maybe there's some of you tonight that are here and it's something different. It isn't a surrender. It's not a suitcase that you're holding in your hand. But for you, it's different. It's Jesus for the very first time. And there's something that's happened, whether it's through people spoken to you or some curiosity some drawing something even that's happening in your heart right now that you can't explain but you know it's supernatural the Bible says that Jesus stands at the door of the heart and he knocks it's not at the ear, it's in the heart it's internal, it's deeper 
And his knock is that if you would open to him, he will come in and he will save you. He'll forgive you of your sin, wash away your guilt, and to begin to restore and to make you what he intended from the very beginning. And he says, whosoever will, let them come. And our part in that is to realize that he paid for it on his cross. He's inviting us by his grace, and his word is, follow me. In the same way that he spoke it to Peter and Andrew and James and John, some of you here tonight, right now, Jesus, if you listen, he is saying to you, follow me, and I will make you. Only he can make you. No person can make you. No hobby can make you. No pleasure can make you. No amount of money can make you. Jesus can make you. And nothing will hinder his power from completing his purpose. I want to ask you, if you've never asked Jesus to save you, and if you've never said yes to his call to follow, I want to ask you that you would just pray this prayer after me. And I want to ask all of you to do it. I want to ask you to pray with me, even if you've prayed this before, just so that nobody feels like they're praying alone. But if you want to let Jesus in and say yes to Jesus tonight, would you pray this prayer? Dear Jesus, I open my heart to you. I hear your call to follow. And I want your will for my life. Please forgive me of my sins. Forgive me for trying to do it by myself. I need you in my life. Would you come in? Would you save me? I want to follow you the rest of my life. Give me your spirit and teach me your ways. From this moment forward, I'm yours in Jesus' name. If you just prayed that for the very first time, on the count of three, would you be brave enough just to shoot your hand up in the air and be recognized and say, not, not recognized for the sake of church membership or someone to harass you, but just to acknowledge publicly to say, yes, I said yes to Jesus tonight. On the count of three, one, two, three. See hands. Church praise. Father, we ask tonight that as we go, that you would take this thing that we've heard, this word, that you would seal it in our hearts would lead us forward from this place that we might be fully followers of you for we ask it in jesus name amen let's stand together shall we thanks for joining us for the pastor nick santo podcast to regularly receive these teachings be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released if you find this material helpful please share it and help us get the message of jesus out to others we also appreciate your feedback so if you would Leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.